0: Well, let's pray and ask God to meet us in the scriptures this morning. Father, here we are, and we've already received so much from you. And we want to ask you again. You are the infinite giving God. And so we pray in Jesus' name that you would increase the work of your Holy Spirit even more. Uh, Help me, Lord as I preach and help all of us to not be distracted, to really get what you want us to get from your word this morning. So come and work with power, now we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Well, I want you to imagine that uh, you are a doctor. You are a cancer specialist. I've had a lot of people talking about cancer healings here. You're a cancer specialist, and you are called in to examine a patient's test results. And so you look at x-rays, and uh, man, there's the tumor right there. And you look at blood tests, and that confirms. And so you've, you study the, this patient's test results, and you can tell. This patient has, its, it's terminal, but it's treatable cancer. It's terminal in that if they're not treated, they will die. But it's treatable in that if they will get the treatment, they will be completely healed. So you're the doctor, that's the results, the test results. But then you hear another doctor telling this patient, oh, you don't have any problem. You don't have cancer. You're fine. Good news. You can go home. You'll be okay. You hear this? What would you do? Well, go back to the test results. Look again. There's the tumor. Here's the blood test, other tests to confirm it. It's there. So what would you do? For the sake of love, you would do everything you could to persuade this other doctor to stop telling the patient what's not true and to persuade the patient that the patient does have it's terminal, but it is treatable cancer so that the patient would be healed. Because if the patient ignores the treatment, the patient's going to die. That's the situation that we followers of Jesus find ourselves in today. Here's what I mean. We study God's word, the the medical records, and we see from God's word that all of us, because of our rebellion against God, we face terminal, treatable hell. It's terminal, eternal, conscious punishment, but it's completely treatable through faith in Jesus Christ. There's the medical records. That's what we see. Now, two weeks ago, a book was published by a pretty well-known author, a guy named Rob Bell, a pastor of an 8,000-member church in Michigan called Mars Hill Church, not to be confused with the Act 29 Mars Hill Church in Seattle, but he published this book, and in this book, he says... That hell is not eternal, and that ultimately everyone, believer, unbeliever, will end up in heaven. Okay. That's not what the test results show. It's not what the test results show. And my concern, my great concern, is that that message will bring great harm to unbelievers who think they can go home without any treatment because it's all going to be fine, and also to believers, where we lose one of the weapons Jesus gave us to fight against sin, that warning, and where we would lose at least some of our passion for evangelism and we'd lose some of the reason to risk life and limb to take the gospel to unreached people groups, lots of harmful consequences. And so here's my aim this morning. I want to do all that I can in this brief time to equip you to understand what the Bible teaches about heaven and hell and to equip you so that you can help other people understand what the Bible teaches about heaven and hell. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 45. If you need a Bible like we always do, I'd like you to be able to have one that you can open up and Turn to. So go ahead and raise your hand. Don't be bashful about that. I want to make sure you all have got a Bible. We've got plenty. The timing of this I thought was interesting, and in that as this book came out two weeks ago, and this next section of Isaiah raises the question about what does the Bible teach about final judgment and its outcome. Isaiah 45 is on page 605 in the Bibles that we're passing out. 605. And we're going to focus on verses 20 through 25, this last section of, of chapter 45. So what's Isaiah? saying in these verses. What's he, what's he talking about here? Last week we saw in verses 1-19 through 19 that God is talking about prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that he made about future events that would happen and how God fulfilled each one. Boom, boom, boom. God is sovereign over history. He can predict the future because he controls the future. He's God. And his purpose in doing all these prophecies and fulfilling them was so that everyone would know that there is a God. Everyone would know that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that there is no other God. So that's verses 19 through 20. And his his point of doing that in verses 20 through 22 is to call all the nations to turn to him and be saved. Look at this verse 22. This is the point of verses 20 to 22. Look at verse 22. God says, Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. You've heard of, you've seen prophecies I've made that have been miraculously fulfilled, so therefore, turn to me. I am God, I will save you. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Then in verse 23, he gives another reason why they should turn to him and be saved. And look at what he says. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. In other words, this is going to happen. What? To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. So the reason every knee, every the end of the earth, everyone should turn to God and be saved is because the day is coming when absolutely certainly every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. So what does that mean? You could think that that means that Isaiah is saying everyone is going to have humble faith in God and so everyone will end up being saved. You could conclude that, Right? But if you keep reading, you'll see that that's not the case. This is another example of how important it is to to look at the whole context when you're doing your Bible study. So in verse 24, we read about some who are not saved. Verse 24, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength, to him, to God, shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him? To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. So, everyone who lived their life incensed against God and rebellion against God, they will all come. Just like verse forty, I'm sorry, verse twenty-three says, they will come and they will be ashamed. Now, if you study that word "ashamed," the way Isaiah uses it, it's not the shame of being convicted and broken for your sin; it's the shame of being exposed in your sin. Just on your own, check out Isaiah 41, 11 as an example. Numerous times in Isaiah, that's what ashamed means. He frequently connects with ashamed and confounded, like your sin is exposed by God and his judgment comes upon you. That's verse 24. Some will not be saved. But verse 25, some will be saved. I love this verse. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel... Different group than verse 24. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Who are the offspring of Israel? New Testament teaches clearly that everyone who's in Christ it becomes part of God's people, the people of Israel. Old Testament, they had faith in God's mercy, became part of God's people. We, through Christ, become part of God's people. So everyone who, in the Old Testament, trusting God's mercy, New Testament, trusting Jesus, you're the offspring of Israel. You shall be justified, completely forgiven for all your sins, clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness, and shall glory, which means you'll be saved. Okay, so if some are not saved, verse 24, and some are saved, verse 25, how can verse 23 say that all will come and bow and swear allegiance to God? What does that mean? To answer that, keep your finger here, but turn to Zephaniah. Actually, we'll just put it up on the screen. Yeah, you don't need to turn there, okay? just What I want to show you is that the words bow to God and swear allegiance, exact same Hebrew word, although the word allegiance doesn't show up in Zephaniah, exact same Hebrew words. What I want to show you is that that does not necessarily mean humble, heartfelt bowing and swearing allegiance to God. It can mean just an external thing that that you do without having it be from the heart. Read Zephaniah 1 verses 4 through 6. God is speaking, a word of judgment. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and I will cut off from this place, the remnant of Baal, and the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, so these priests are bowing down on the roofs to idols. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord. Exact same Hebrew phrase is there. So they bow down to the host of the heaven, and they bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, who is a terrible idol those who've turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. See what's going on here? There are people who here are bowing down and swearing to the Lord, but they are people who have turned back from following the Lord. They do not seek the Lord. They do not inquire of him. So the language, bowing down and swearing to the Lord, can mean in some context, and the context will show what it means, can mean, humble faith, submission to God's mercy, salvation. It can mean that. Context will show if it means that. Or it can mean just kind of, you know, doing your ritual, whatever. You'll you'll do it. You'll pay homage to a little bit of Yahweh here and then you'll hit up Milcom in case he's in control today or some other God. It means nothing in terms of any kind of salvation or any kind of real spirituality before the living God. So the same Hebrew phrase can be one of two different things. So... What verse 23 means here, it's the exact same thing that Paul says it means when he quotes this verse in Romans 14. The day is coming. Here's what God is saying in Isaiah 45, and this, is, this applies to all of us. The day is coming when every single human being will be drawn to God's final judgment. All will bow, some willingly, some under constraint. But every human being, you and me and everyone who's ever lived will be there before God's final judgment. Everyone will either willingly or unwillingly be forced to acknowledge that God is God. And at that point then, God is going to judge humanity. And there's two outcomes. Verse 24, some will not be saved. Verse 25, some will be saved. Okay, so here's Isaiah 45, verses 20 through 25, and we have this picture of the final judgment. So the next question I want to go to is, what are the outcomes of this final judgment? What are the possible outcomes here? What does the Bible teach about eternity? But let me just, does that, do you understand verses 23, 24, and 25? Does that make sense? I want to make sure we got this as a foundation before we move on. Any just brief questions about that? I'm trying to explain how verse 23 applies to everybody. Some bow willingly, some under constraint. Verse 24, unsaved. Verse 25, saved. Chuck, you got a question? I was thinking about um, the two groups in heaven, and maybe I'm jumping ahead, but it seems like there is a group at judgment that will say, We're yours, we're yours, but he rejects them. And is that the, the type of bowing down that you're trying to get across? Possibly, possibly. But this is everybody. Verse 23 is everyone, every single human being. So that that could be part of the group that's bowing down not as an expression of the heart, but just some kind of outer formality and they're not genuinely saved. Could be. Other questions, okay? So is is this clear? Okay, all right, now. With that in mind from Isaiah 45, Remember, the reason God, the whole point of God saying this is because the punchline is turn to me then. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. That's what God's saying to you. You may never have turned to God in Jesus Christ and been saved. That's what he is saying. The day is coming when you will stand before God at the final judgment. Some will be unsaved. Some will be saved. Therefore, turn to God and be saved. That's God's heart. Okay? So now, with that in mind, what does the Bible teach about eternity? And I just want to start with two views, and I hope to show you that both of these views are not what the Bible teaches. First, one answer people give is uh, what the Bible teaches about eternity is universalism. Universalism, everyone, and, and that is the idea that in the end, everyone is saved and ends up in heaven. Okay, everyone. It's universalism. Everyone is saved and ends up in heaven. But, but look at Matthew twenty five forty six. Just go ahead and turn there. I want, I want you to see this for yourselves. And see, I'm, I'm I'm trying to be the other. I'm trying to be the doctor who's saying the other doctor's wrong. And Matthew twenty five forty six. These words from Jesus, I think, are, are crystal clear on this point. These are the X rays. You can see the tumor right here. Matthew 25, 46. This is from the parable of the sheep and the goats. Read the whole parable for yourself. All of humanity comes before Jesus Christ, final judgment. Some are sheep and some are goats. The sheep are those whose love for Jesus' brothers shows that they had genuine faith in Christ. They weren't perfect, it's not why they're saved, but their life shows that they had faith in Christ. The goats are those whose lack of love for Jesus' brothers showed that they were just continuing in rebellion against God in their lives. And so in verse 20, verse 46, Jesus describes the two destinies these groups will face. He starts with the goats. These, those whose lives show that they were not trusting Christ, these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, that's the sheep, those who were trusting Christ, into eternal life. So there's there's two destinies. Do you see that? This is Jesus. And listen, by the way, no one loves more than Jesus. And no one speaks more about hell in the Bible than Jesus. Why? It's because no one loves more than Jesus. That's why. And so here it's very clear there's two destinies. Now, some would say it's not so clear and I, I want to have you understand this they would say that the word eternal doesn't always mean eternal and that that's true okay, the Greek word for eternal has a range of meaning sometimes it means never ending time eternal forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever it does mean that sometimes at other times it means a length of time that's indeterminate but not never ending okay And that's true. I want you to understand this. The Greek word has a broad range of meaning. Sometimes it means eternal. Sometimes it means an indeterminate time. I'm not sure what other word you'd use anyway. All right, you got that? So how do we know what it means here? No one disputes the fact that eternal life here means eternal, never-ending time. Everybody agrees on that point. No matter what view people end up with, everybody agrees that the saved will be saved forever. Eternal, conscious, new heaven and new earth, joy in God's presence forever. Everybody agrees with that. So here's the deal. If an author uses the same word twice in one sentence, then unless there's huge contextual reasons otherwise, we should conclude rightly with full confidence that he means the same thing both times he uses it. Right? You all talk that way. You'd never use the same word in the sentence with radically different meanings and not giving clues. Like, now I'm going to use it differently. So, eternal life means never-ending life and eternal punishment means never-ending punishment, which means universalism is impossible from Jesus' words here. Do you see that? I want you not just to get it, but so that you could explain this to somebody else who might be struggling with this question in the weeks or months to come, so that you can point to the x-ray and say, no, 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 it's, it's terminal, treatable cancer. It's terminal, treatable hell. But there's treatment, right? Okay, so there's many other scriptures. I put some more in your, in your notes there. Take a look. But there's two very different eternal destinies, and universalism is, is not right. Another answer that's not taught in the Bible is annihilationism. Long word. Some people teach that there are two different destinies, but the unsaved just end up ceasing to exist. They just are no more. And so, stop existing. And I want you to understand the biggest argument, as I've read people who hold to this view, the biggest argument is that they say, like for example, Jesus says, don't fear those who who kill the body, but fear the one who destroys both soul and body in hell. Talking about God here. So therefore God destroys soul and body in hell and they say destroys. If you're destroyed, then you're destroyed. And it would just follow naturally that you cease to exist. There's a problem with that though. That Greek word destroy, I hope I'm not throwing too much Greek and stuff at you. I, don't, I, don't, I try not to do that. But anyway, it's, you need to do it sometimes. That word destroy has a broad range of meaning also. Sometimes it means that something would cease to exist. yes. Other times it's, it means to be lost, like the lost coin. That's the word that's used there. Sometimes it means to be ruined, but not cease to exist, like the wineskin that was ruined. It doesn't cease to exist, it just continues to exist in a ruined state. So, broad range of meaning. Are you tracking with me? Do we need to order Starbucks again this Sunday? Okay, are you with me? Okay. So you've got a broad range of meaning. So, so the question is, what does Jesus mean? What does the Bible mean? Let me just illustrate how the word destroyed in the context of eternity does not mean that we cease to exist. Look at Revelation 17.8. This is way back to the right. Book of Revelation, page 1038. Here that Greek word destroy, destruction is used. And I want you to see that in the context of Revelation, it does not mean cease to exist. Quite the contrary. Revelation 17.8. Some of you maybe are, are squirming at this point because you're just like, you know, you, you're you you do not know that you're saved. You don't know that you're trusting Christ. You, 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 and and this could be like a really painful sermon for you to hear. To the reason, I mean, what I've prayed about this week is that you know, Jesus, you spoke about hell so clearly and so frequently, and it was because you loved people, helped people Sunday morning to feel that. For me, I'm not Jesus by any stretch of the imagination. But see, this is why this is so important. And so squirming can be helpful, okay? Because there's treatment available. There is treatment available. But look at Revelation 17, 8. Speaking about the beast, and if you don't know who the beast is, read Revelation. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. There's that Greek word destruction, okay? So does that mean that the beast is going to cease to exist in the book of Revelation? Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. A couple of pages to the right. Chapter 20, verse 10. We see what it meant that the beast went to destruction. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they, the devil, the beast, the false prophet, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see that? Okay, the word destroyed here, the point I want to make is that in John writing Revelation, when he talks about the beast being destroyed, what destroyed means is that he ends up in the lake of fire and sulfur being tormented day and night, forever and ever. So, so the word destroyed does not have to mean cease to exist. And here John is explicit. We can see that it does not mean that in the case of, of the beast and in, case, in the case of those who are thrown into hell. Okay, so I, I hope you see Clearly, And again, there's lots of other verses you could look at. I've got some more there in your notes. But the Bible does not teach universalism. It does not teach annihilationism. It doesn't say that you don't have terminal, treatable cancer. It says you do, you do have terminal, treatable cancer. Let me just show you one other verse, passages. In Revelation chapter 14, 9 through 11, what the Bible teaches is that for those who... Trust Jesus Christ, they will live forever in the new heavens and the new earth, swept up with the redeemed in the worship and the enjoyment of God in His Son Jesus. That's, that's what the redeemed will, will know, and, and those who persist in rebellion will face eternal conscious uh, torment. Revelation 14,9 through11. This is one of the most frightening. Passages, And again, God's goal in frightening passages is because he wants us to flee to the treatment. Okay? He loves us enough to not whitewash anything. Verse 9. Another angel, a third following them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand that's just referring to those who who are continuing in rebellion against God, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Not mixed, full strength wrath. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur, in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. That's Jesus. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. That description is absolutely horrifying. It should make you feel sick to your stomach. If you, if you get a little taste of what's being described here. Torment forever and ever. No rest day or night. A day, a week, a year, a century, a billion, a billion years, and at that point you'll realize that's one point on an infinite line. This should just make you feel sick. It should make you weep. I've been weeping this week. Because I've got loved ones who are facing this right now. But see, the reason that God has John speak so graphically here, the reason that Jesus spoke so graphically about hell, is because he wants everyone to understand what's at stake on planet Earth, so nobody misses the, the, the utter seriousness of this. So nobody misses it. Those who continue in rebellion against God will face eternal, eternal punishment. <laughs> okay, so how's God just to do that? How, how's that justice for God to do? It's an important question to raise because God is perfectly just. So let me, let me try to help you feel uh, the justice of this. Just, just think about, about who God is. Start with who God is. Okay. God has always been. Just let that blow your mind of God's greatness. No beginning. He's always been in the fellowship of the Trinity. And God is infinitely perfect. I mean, He's perfect in justice, perfect in love, Perfect in goodness, perfect in beauty and majesty, sovereignty, power, wisdom, knowledge. This is who God is. He's just perfect, He's glorious. And he decided to, to create a universe and, and he created a world and he created you, right? That's why you're here. I like to remind you of that frequently. He gave you life, gave you life. And he gave you a body and he gave you others and he gave you sunrises and sunsets and wine and cheese and, you know, clouds and moon and puppies and, okay, he's just given us creation so that through all of this gift, here's the world, here's life, here's taste buds, here's food, here's sex, here's drink, here's these gifts, sex and marriage, okay, here's all these gifts God's given to you, okay, so that God could show us he is awesome, We've just been lavished this infinite gift from God. Look, we have life, we have each other." Also we would say, "You're amazing, and so that we would see who He is and recognize who he is and thank him and worship Him and follow him and trust him. Right? And all of us have refused. We owe him everything. Forget it. I'll go my own way. make my own life. Make my own decisions. Huey on you. And yet God is God's patience. Slow to anger. Right? Right? And so He continued to bring sunrise and sunset and harvest and food and babies and you know, waves, and just he kept giving us Wonderful things. And he raised up Israel and worked signs and wonders to Israel so the nations would see who God is. And then he sent his own son, Jesus, who walked for three years, healing blind eyes, raising paralyzed people, calming storms, multiplying food and fish. Do you see world? Do you see who I am? But no matter how clearly God revealed himself to us, we've all refused to thank him. To bend the knee before him, to worship him, to submit to him. And God is perfectly just, perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, and he has to punish wickedness. And so what did God do? Justice, God's justice says the punishment must fit the crime. Right? And we have persisted in desecrating infinite beauty, infinite majesty, infinite goodness. We've persisted in desecrating God and that's an infinite crime. And an infinite crime requires an infinite punishment. Think about it like this. I try to think of an illustration. If you... uh, if you kill a dog in this country, in this, in this state, you've desecrated the, the, the worth of a dog, and that's a misdemeanor. And you could be in prison for one or two years. Do you know that? Okay. All right, now, if you kill a person, we're talking life in prison, maybe capital punishment. Why the greater sentence? Because you've desecrated a greater worth, the worth of a human being. Right? You all feel that? That's just justice. Punishment must fit the crime. Okay? We've all persistently desecrated the infinite worth of God. Now our problem is none of us, none of us can feel God's infinite worth because we are finite beings. But he is. We can talk it, we can explain it, make sense. We don't feel it, but he's totally infinite in his worth. And we've persistently desecrated the infinite worth of God. And so it's right and it's just for God to to punish us with an infinite punishment, eternal conscious torment. So, see, so we need to understand. Just want to start here. God would be absolutely just and righteous if He simply cast all of humanity into hell forever and walked away. Right? You, you need to get this. He would be absolutely just if he did that. And all of creation would like applaud and all the angels would praise you for your justice because it would be right. You got to feel that. That would be absolutely just and righteous for God to do. None of us could have a complaint. But that's not what God did. What God did was show a mercy that is absolutely shocking. Here's how this struck me this week as I was just meditating on this. What, what God has done, if you're trusting Jesus Christ now, all your sins are forgiven through faith in Christ, here's what God did. God took the eternal conscious torment that you were on your way towards justly. He took that eternal conscious torment, all, all of that, which is God's wrath that was going to be poured out upon you, the infinite justice, judgment, punishment you deserved. He took that, and what did he do with it? He poured that infinite wrath upon Jesus. Jesus paid your hell so you wouldn't have to. Now that, see, the horror of hell helps you feel the horror of the cross. Because during those hours that Jesus was on the cross, your infinite, eternal, conscious torment was poured out upon him. Now, it didn't last forever for him, okay? but see, because Jesus is infinite God, his suffering was infinite suffering. During those hours, infinite suffering was experienced by Jesus. Why did he anguish in the garden as he anticipated this? Why did he sweat like drops of blood as he anticipated this? Why was he praying and laboring because he knew what was coming? Hell was coming for him during those hours on the cross. So see, we should not wonder how could God cast people into hell? That is absolutely just for him to do. You've got to understand that. If he didn't do it, he would be unjust. The question shouldn't be, how can God cast people into hell? The question we should wonder about is, why would God cast our hell upon his holy, perfect son, Jesus, so we wouldn't have to go to hell? That's the question. Do you understand the God who created heaven, created hell, came to earth in the person of Jesus so he could experience that hell so you wouldn't have to? And you're going to wonder, how can you send people to hell? He experienced hell in the person of Jesus so you wouldn't have to. Oh, I hope you feel this, the love of God for us. God demonstrated his love for us. God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus looked at you rebelling against God. Rightly, righteously headed towards hell. And he was willing to take your hell upon himself and pay for it. Paul talks about Jesus who says, Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. Look at the love of God for you. You, You're feeling the horrors of hell, I hope, this morning. And I hope the, the next step you're feeling is Jesus would be willing to endure infinite punishment, endure that for me? God would be willing to pour that out upon his holy, perfect son for me? Yes, yes, yes! The love of God, the treatment is there. Do you see this? For you and for everybody you know, the treatment's there. Now, what does this mean for us? Just two things. I've already mentioned this, but if you're not yet a believer, flee to Christ. Flee to him. Bend the knee in faith before him. And through his death on the cross, he will forgive you for all of your sins. Nobody gets saved because they're afraid of hell. But the reality of hell kind of knocks us upside the head, saying, okay, what's going on here? You get saved because you want God more than anything else. But the reality of hell can jolt you into sobriety so you see what's really going on, okay? Flee to Jesus Christ. Bend the knee before him. Repent of your waywardness. Receive him into your life as your savior, as your Lord, as your your heart-satisfying treasure. And you can leave here today with a radically different eternal destiny, than what you walked in here with this morning. Destiny, not just not hell, but I can know God forever. That's the destiny. So that's one takeaway. Flee to Jesus Christ. The second one is live in light of eternity. Those of you who are believers. I read an illustration this week. 1982 in England, uh, a massive thick fog came down upon the country in one freeway in particular. Thick fog, zero visibility. And a a truck, a big semi with a lot of big uh, paper rolls behind it, lost control, turned over, crashed, and then car after car, bam, bam, bam. And there were dozens of cars piled up and dozens of people wounded and and killed. Two police officers pull up, are absolutely horrified at what they see because the cars just keep zooming past them and then they hear it and, then, and so they, they started, got in front of people and tried to wave their hands and they're shouting at people and the cars kept zooming by them they said the tears are streaming down the police officers faces they're taking traffic cones and trying to throw them in the car's windshields stop, stop, stop the car just kept zooming by them just thud, crash, screech thud, crash Your neighbors and work associates and friends who don't know Christ are speeding towards eternal conscious torment. That's what they're speeding towards. You need to see that. For the sake of love, you need to see that. See it. Feel it. It will change us. I need to be changed more in this. Your neighbors are speeding towards hell. Hell. Your work associates are speeding towards hell. Family members, friends who don't know Christ are speeding towards hell. So, love them. Love them. Pray for them. And talk to them. Humbly, clearly, boldly, talk to them. Live for eternity. Let's stand together. I want to pray this over us. weighty, weighty truths, Father, that you had the Holy Spirit inspire John to write, that you had your Holy Son speak. We want to see them. We want to submit, bow before them. We want to be changed by them. Change us, Lord. I pray for those right now who are not yet trusting you, that that they would see it's terminal, but it's treatable through the cross, that you'd put in their hearts a longing to know you, a longing to love you, to thank you, to to worship you, that they would turn from whatever else they've been trusting and bend the knee before your holy son, Jesus, and be saved. Do that right now, I pray. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are trusting you. We need to live more in the light of eternity. And so we ask together, just just ask God right now, Father, give us more of the work of the Holy Spirit so that we would see this more clearly and feel this more deeply and be freed from the things that make us timid and so unloving sometimes. Help us, Lord, to live in the light of eternity, I pray. Put this upon us, God. I pray that this week we can pray for lost people and love lost people and speak to lost people. And Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus. Thank you for being willing to pour out a hell's worth of punishment upon your perfect Holy Son so that we can be forgiven. What a loving God you are. What shocking mercy. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.